0: The yeas are 220, the nays are 213, the bill Back Better bill is passed. So there's that. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. At least in the house. I got the
1: feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. To the left me, to
0: the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Oh, hey. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We're also streaming coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today as we've got a lot to get to as our, (laughs) um, well, our last our last show for a while here as we're going to be hitting the road for the holiday uh, next week. And we've got it. I want to make sure we fit in along with everything else. One last bit of economic myth busting before we hit the road for the holiday. Hello, Desi Doyen. Hello.
2: Always good to myth bust whenever possible. Correct.
0: Uh, Someone's got to. Otherwise, people are going to be sitting around watching their cable TV news for the next week and freaking out about things like inflation and supply chains.
2: Panic, quick.
0: We will unpanic you shortly. Uh, As you have likely heard by now, very quickly, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was uh, acquitted by a jury on Friday following a trial with a very pro-defendant judge, I think is a nice way to say it, Uh, Rittenhouse was acquitted for having shot uh, three men, killing two of them as a 17-year-old last year during demonstrations following the police killing of a black man, Jacob Blake, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, sending what seems to me to be a very clear signal that you are now welcome, even if you are underage, apparently, to be carrying a semi-automatic rifle into a different state and then kill whoever you like as long as you claim that it was done in self-defense. And I suppose if you happen to be a white kid, that probably helps a lot. seems difficult to fathom that a 17-year-old black kid doing the exact same thing would have gotten off scot-free after killing two people Uh, who were using their First Amendment rights to petition the government for redress of grievances. But what do I know? Anyway, everyone else is covering that today, I suppose. So you don't need me for the for the moment Uh, in, in some better news for now to sort of help us out the door as we prepare to stand down. After a seemingly pointless eight and a half hour delay overnight, By GOP House Majority Minority Leader, sorry, GOP House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, United Democrats handed President Joe Biden a marquee victory, at least for now, by approving a roughly $2 trillion social spending and environment bill. As Democrats cast aside disputes that for months had stalled the measure and hampered efforts to sell their priorities to voters, every Democrat but one backed it, overcoming unanimous Republican opposition, unanimous Republican opposition, not one voted in favor, despite all that the Build Back Better bill actually does for everyone's constituents across the country.
2: Yeah, it's kind of wild. Republicans don't think Americans deserve help with paying for childcare or elder care or family leave. You know, moms with new babies, sorry, Republicans don't think you deserve paid family leave. It's pretty weird.
0: There's a whole lot that they don't uh, think Americans uh, want or deserve, and yet they're going to go out and take credit for it anyway, because everyone is going to feel this bill if it passes. The real difficulty, it has passed the House, but the real difficulty still lies ahead in the Senate where any one Democratic sen- senator, say Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema, can actually kill the bill or essentially force anything out of it or into it that they want at this point since all 50 Democratic votes are going to be needed to pass the bill under the Senate's budget reconciliation rules. For the moment, in any event, Democrats were happy to shake off a A period of off-year election setbacks, tumbling Biden poll numbers, and public disgruntlement, as AP calls it, over... Uh, what I would call misleadingly reported inflation numbers, stalled supply chains, also misleadingly reported, which I'll get to with my guest in a moment. And of course, the pandemic, all that and the party's nasty internal bickering have left voters with little idea of how the legislation might actually help them. That according to polls. So while I hope to have more time for this later, the legislation would help them in more ways than I could possibly explain in an hour long program, frankly, with literally dozens and dozens and dozens of programs that, frankly, if almost any one of them were passed as a standalone deal, it would be, uh, well, to paraphrase Joe Biden, a BFD. <laughs> Seriously, if any one of these scores of programs, new programs that are being put in place, if any one of them were passed as a standalone, uh, we'd be talking about it for the rest of the year. I mean, I'm looking at this uh, five page line item uh, list of one program after another for families, housing, health care, education, the economy, workers, immigration, climate And a whole bunch of other stuff that, if it were up to me, I I would spend the whole hour detailing. Um, But again, we can't for today. But I cannot stress, you know, how many of these programs that Democrats would have liked to have passed for years and years how transformative this legislation will be if, in fact, it can actually be passed by the US Senate, in theory, at some point, just after Thanksgiving, in theory. <laughs> uh, but so, you know, we will return to it. Uh, Does you listed just a few of those things, but expanding uh, health care, expanding education? paid family
2: leave pa- paid. all of the climate spending in it yeah. which is crucial because it's the other half of the of the infrastructure bill mm-hmm. you know it's great to build a say a, a national electric vehicle charging network but it really helps to have the other half that's in the build back better act which will help working families actually purchase electric vehicles yeah stuff a- like that
0: yeah And uh, purchase uh, solar for your homes, replacing lead pipes all over the country.
2: Weatherizing your home for extreme weather like winter and summer, you know, keep your energy bills low, all of those things.
0: Pre-K for everyone in America, free pre-K for everyone in America, pretty much. I mean, one thing after another. See, we're already going off. We're already, (laughs) we could spend the hour, as I said, and maybe... Probably we will spend that hour in the days ahead if and when this thing passes. So, the Senate. Uh, yeah, that's correct. the hard part. So, we will see if it does, it will be a BFD. But I must say, I am still very worried, as happy as the Democrats are today. I'm still very worried about what Joe Manchin and to a lesser but similar extent, uh, Kirsten Cinema. Uh, is going to do now in order to uh, what what they're going to demand in order to win over their votes if one or both of them don't actually just kill the bill entirely in the Senate before all is said and done. So we will see good news for Democrats to enjoy over the Thanksgiving holiday. We will see after they return from that break how merry their Christmas will actually be. Uh, But, hey, as long as we're in a festive mood for the moment... Uh, Earlier this week, we reported on some grim news out of Spotsylvania County, Virginia, where the school board there last week held a unanimous six to seven vote to ban certain books from school libraries that they had deemed to be sexually explicit and therefore inappropriate for school libraries in the county. That was creepy enough, but the even more creepy part was that their 6-0 vote to ban these books came after a debate about whether the school board should ban those books or whether they should both ban and, yes, burn those books. The call to burn the books, literally, a call to burn the books, they had a debate on this, came from uh, two members of the board, one guy named Kirk Twig, who... Frankly, with a name like that ought to be careful about what he calls to be burned. <laughs> and another guy by the name, a name that I can't really pronounce, but it's Robbie Abu Ismail I don't know. He made a name for himself a couple of years ago when he was the youngest ever to be elected to the Spotsylvania school board at the age of 22. Uh, last week, he described some of these award-winning books as pornography. He said, I think we should throw those books on the fire. While Twig said uh, many would like to see the books before we burn them so we can identify within our community that we are eradicating this bad stuff. Anyway, the <laughs> the board ultimately decided to just ban not burn for now those books, and they asked for a list of more books to be banned at their meeting the following week, this week. So we covered that story uh, in an episode of the broadcast highlighting the chilling, if unmistakable, drumbeat of authoritarianism that is now rising across the nation of late, Well, a bit of good news uh, here as well as democracy strikes back this week at a special meeting of the board that had to be held, the Spotsylvania school board, that had to be held in a school auditorium due to all the people who showed up and wanted to speak to the board about their decision last week. As reported by the Fredericksburg Freelance Star, who did a great job, local paper, of reporting on this, During four and a half hours of public comment from dozens of parents, students, teachers, and libraries, nearly all of those who made comments at this special meeting spoke passionately in support of libraries and books. Despite multiple demands from speakers that he formally apologize to school division librarians and superintendent Scott Baker and even resign from his position on the school board, Abu Ismail did neither of those things. Instead, he reiterated his stance that books and libraries should be scoured for objectionable content. During the hours of public comment, however, school community members spoke about libraries as safe spaces and important centers of education for youth and about books as tools for developing empathy and awareness of a wider world. This board doesn't understand who our students really are, said one county librarian. We have students who are victims of sexual abuse, who have been forced to prostitute, who have two moms or two dads who identify as LGBTQ plus, whose home is drug infested. The school library is a safe place for them to find themselves in books. Students credited books they read in school or checked out at the school library with helping them see themselves, teaching them about difficult subjects, carrying them through challenging times. A former county student said that as one of the few black students in school, she experienced racist bullying until the class was assigned to read To Kill a Mockingbird. She said books teach compassion. They teach empathy. To Kill a Mockingbird, she said, after we read it, I wasn't called the N-word ever again. Cortland High School student Alexander Storin credited books with saving his life last year during a time when he twice attempted suicide. He said the book shattered May have saved my life. It showed me that my life had meaning, that it mattered when our school board, which is supposed to have the best interest of our students at heart, bans books because they contain LGBTQ representation. What message is that sending to our teens, to our kids who are at risk? It's like saying you don't matter, he said. The many librarians who uh, spoke up begged for the board to respect their education and training in the field of library science and their support for the right of all children to read. The school board, public speakers pointed out, already had an established policy for reviewing instructional and library materials, which was mostly approved. I'm sorry, it was most recently approved in July of 2019. That policy states that the responsibility for the selection of educational materials is delegated to professional instruction personnel, Uh, a, a continuous process which involves principals, supervisors, faculty, parents, and students, according to the policy. It states that anyone wishing to challenge instructional material must fill out a form, file it with the school principal, The form asks whether the complainant has actually read the book or listened to or viewed the material, quote, in its entirety. And if the answer is no, asks that the complainant do so before completing the form. If they do, then there's a a process that the school principal leads. There's a checklist of, of, of things. An ad hoc review committee is put together within 15 days. And then the principal decides what action to take. So there is already a process for this. We don't have to ban books, much less burn books. One speaker accused Abu Ismail of violating the school board's code of ethics, which all members of the school board sign. Frankly, when you look at what that board, what that code of ethics is, yes, Abu Ismail did violate it. Many speakers called for him uh, to issue a formal apology to the school division's 34 librarians. Some called for him to resign. County students sat at the front of the high school auditorium holding signs in protest against censorship and book burning and calling for Abu Ismail to, quote, resign or face recall. A petition for his removal had more than a thousand signatures on it as of uh, the end of the meeting. Just two speakers all night spoke in favor of removing books from library shelves. School board chair Don Shelley announced at the beginning of the public comments period that comments would be cut off at midnight, but at midnight, one of the representatives on the board moved to continue public comments to allow more people to speak because there was more who wanted to, but that motion failed. Unfortunately, Uh, They had to cut it off at midnight, but the next motion did not fail. Another vote was held, and this time the board decided that Spotsylvania County schools will not remove, quote, sexually explicit books from library uh, shelves or conduct a full audit of library holdings as they had voted just one week earlier. The board on Monday night rescinded last week's directive to pull books uh, with quote, explicit content from the shelves amid the backlash from the public.
2: Good. It shows that school board elections matter and showing up to your school board to talk to them
0: also matters. Yes. Democracy matters. People speaking out in a democracy, showing up and raising hell. And yes, local media reporting on this, getting out the word to the public, to the local public and yes, to the national public. That all matters. By the way, the vote was five to two. It was not supported uh, by Abu Ismail or Twig, who last week made the comments about burning books. But everyone else on the school board changed their mind. But Abu Ismail and Twig, they lost. And democracy won, at least for now, at least in this corner of Virginia in Spotsylvania County. Thanks to we, the people, showing up and fighting for it. And thanks, frankly, to local media getting the word out about what their local school boards were actually doing. If only the national corporate media informed us as well, I might be a lot happier. Instead, they seem to be busy misleading the nation on one thing after another. If you follow the corporate media in our absence while we're off next week, you will probably be freaking out about inflation and supply chain issues before Christmas and thinking, oh, that's it, Democrats are done for, Joe Biden is done for, how do they screw it all up? Because the corporate media will be misreporting on all of this. So in our continuing public service effort to inform our listeners about reality, we've got a thing or two to clarify about both of those things. Yes, inflation and supply chain issues. That is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
2: What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks.
1: Reality used to be a friend of mine, reality used to be a friend of mine Maybe why is the question that's on your mind, but reality
0: used to be a friend yeah. of mine Reality used to be, a friend, used of to be uh, a friend of all of ours, I don't know what's going on in this country Well actually I do, and I'm blaming the media for it Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com The corporate media, not the broadcast media, we thank get you. it right You're welcome, thank you Earlier this week, we were joined by The Intercept's John Schwartz to explain how the corporate media had been uh, really making the day for Republicans and, yes, Joe Manchin by misreporting on recent inflation numbers. For example, describing a 6.2 rise in inflation in October, which would really be an astoundingly troubling one-month raise in. Comp- consumer prices that's how people heard this prices went up 6.2% in October well no they didn't in fact in October inflation was 0.9% that 6.2 number from the bureau of labor statistics was actually over the past year since last October And while, of course, not great, it actually was not much higher than the average increase in worker wages since that time. As employers are now needing to increase wages in order to retain retain workers in an otherwise booming economy. In fact, Schwartz explained how inflation is actually good for many working families, uh, but really bad for lenders like big corporations and yes, big banks thus explaining how the corporate media were freaking out about inflation numbers while largely ignoring really good job numbers and really low unemployment and other good signs for the economy. Well, after getting off air, I saw a column from Paul Waldman at Washington Post who really underscored many of the same points that we did on that sort of myth-busting show with John Schwartz. Uh, If you missed it, you can download it at bradblog.com. For free. In any event, as Waldman wrote, inflation is a genuine problem, but it's hardly spinning out of control. Inflation panic, on the other hand, is getting ridiculous right now. A highly motivated political opposition and a hysterical media are cooperating to characterize a real but manageable issue as a historic economic catastrophe. All you have to do is turn on your TV, pick up a newspaper, or look around the web to see what a frenzy it has become. Once it got going, he writes, the inflation story was tossed into a fast-moving conveyor belt that makes it seem like the most important and terrifying thing to have befallen us in pretty much forever as an avalanche of stories probe it from every angle." Sounds a lot like the broadcast, doesn't he? <laughs> uh, he? He writes, there are multiple factors combining to encourage inflation panic, none of which have much to do with actual economic reality. And he notes that Republicans, not just elected officials and media figures, but ordinary people as well, are highly motivated to say and believe that the economy is an absolute disaster for little reason other than the fact that a Democrat is now in the White House. Inflation is the handiest focus for that. He also goes on to point out how, for example, people notice, of course, the rise in gas prices. If only because every day they get in their car, drive around and they see these great big signs showing how much the gas prices have gone up. As we noted, by the way, that same day that we talked with John Schwartz, uh, Joe Biden is now asking the Federal Trade Commission to investigate whether the big oil companies are colluding in order to manipulate gas prices for profiteering right now. Waldman notes, whenever you hear Republicans blaming inflation on Biden, ask what they think we should do about it. They almost never say, but the real answer is austerity. Cut benefits, raise interest rates and reduce demand by making people miserable, which would, in fact, reduce inflation. But as John Schwartz pointed out, it would also cause a recession. Waldman writes it would also enable Republicans to blame that much greater level of suffering on Joe Biden as well. As Florida's Republican Senator Rick Scott was caught explaining to GOP donors this week, quote, we're going to continue to have inflation and then interest rates will go up. This is a gold mine for us. Rick Scott said,
2: wow, he just came out and said it.
0: Yep, he did. So, yeah, as Waldman concludes, inflation is real. It imposes genuine hardship on people. It's a problem, and there are some things the administration can do to mitigate it. But how about for a change? We try to keep things in perspective. Thank you, Paul Waldman. Uh, Not only that, but let's blame the people who are actually responsible for things that are actually that they are actually responsible for. Which, in fact, brings me to our guest today, who has a thing or two to make clear about what is and isn't causing the supply chain problems that uh, the, the other thing that the media are panicking about right now. One thing that is not, despite the amount of misreporting on this as well, one thing that is not causing the supply chain problems, a shortage of truck drivers. Well, at least not as simply as that. That myth will be busted next on today's broadcast with QZ.com's Nico Rivero. I'm Brad Friedman. You'll want to hear that conversation. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful Corporate Media Echo Chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you.
1: He's <laughs> it up and truck it. Are we going to what
0: they say can't be done Oh, man. Any excuse to play that song. I will even do a full segment on the trucking industry just for the excuse to do so. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, never mind the Republican and corporate media inflated panic about inflation. Never mind the fact that the big oil companies seem to be manipulating their pricing in order to make it worse for everybody, even though the cost of, uh, of of fuel, of oil, to them is down and their profits are up. Go ahead, raise gas prices. Even as Democrats try to pass major action on our climate crisis that for the first time might actually begin to reverse the deadly emissions caused by our massive fossil-fueled transportation sector. Maybe there's a reason those oil companies might like to make things difficult for Democrats these days. But never mind all that, Christmas is coming, and as the pandemic begins to finally ease, maybe, finally, hopefully, the supply chain is still a mess, and consumer goods aren't making it onto store shelves or into our Amazon packages on time to satisfy our insatiable need for ever more such goods, thanks to a worldwide supply chain gone sideways, thanks in no small part to disruptions caused by that pandemic. Hundreds of ships from overseas filled with, well, let's call it stuff, Manufactured overseas for import into the U.S. are lined up for miles offshore, waiting to unload at some of the nation's largest ports, such as the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach out here in Southern California. But once they finally get unloaded, then what? Well, to hear it from the corporate media in recent weeks, those offloaded shipping containers simply have nowhere to go because there is a lack of. Of truck drivers to take them to their final destination, with 73% of goods in the U.S. actually delivered by trucks. Just a few of the headlines you may have seen in recent weeks from New York Times, the biggest kink in America's supply chain, not enough truckers. From CNN Business, Wanted. 80,000 truck drivers to help fix the supply chain. From MarketWatch, how trucking became the weak link in America's supply chain. From CBS Evening News, truck driver shortage worsens supply chain backlog. The industry group, the American Trucking Associations, released a statement in late October declaring that the current driver shortage has now risen to 80,000, with ATA's chief economist noting, quote, Since we last released an estimate of the shortage, there has been tremendous pressure on the driver pool, increased demand for freight, pandemic-related challenges from early retirements, closed driving schools and DMVs, and other pressures are really pushing up demand for drivers and subsequently the shortage. This driver shortage argument has appeared repeatedly in news story after news story, Examining why the gears of the global economy are grinding to a halt, reports Nicolás Rivero at Quartz. Executives at publicly traded companies have referenced the, quote, driver shortage in at least 45 calls with investors in the past month alone, according to data from FactSet. But in fact, as Rivero reports, it's nothing new. The American Trucking Association has been warning that they have a shortage of drivers pretty much every single year since 2005. The assertion that the U.S. is suffering from the latest round of a 16 year truck driver shortage is misleading at best. He writes about two million American uh, Americans work as licensed truck drivers. And states issued more than 450,000 new commercial driver's licenses every year, according to the American Association of Motor Vehicle Administrators. In fact, it's the most common job in 29 states. So if there are 450,000 new commercial driver's licenses issued every year, And now an 80,000 driver shortage, a record for the industry after warning of similar if lower shortages every year since 2005. Well, this math does not seem to add up, at least to me. In fact, Rivero notes the driver shortage, so-called the driver shortage rhetoric has been repeated by the trucking industry since the late 1980s. How could such a Clear shortage persist for three decades in a market economy, he asks. Good question. Lots of them, in fact. We've been uh, spending some time sort of busting other myths on this program in recent days. For example, the notion that very real, if not nearly as high as misleadingly reported inflation is somehow a cause for national panic and a sign of economic disaster for the nation, for which Joe Biden is somehow responsible and that for some unclear reason should somehow prevent passage of a fully paid-for social spending and climate change bill that would actually help ease inflation in the bargain. So while we we are on the myth-busting beat uh, here before heading out for the holidays, I'd like to uh, take a more responsible look at the seemingly knee-jerk claims from corporate media declaring the shortage of truck drivers is now driving our economy to ruin Just before the holidays here to help us and hopefully try to answer at least some of those good questions about the so-called shortage of truck drivers is Nicolás Rivera, who covers tech for Quartz, where he writes about the intersection of humans and computers and in this case, the economy. He's previously written for Popular Science, Mental Floss, Miami New Times. Nico Rivera, welcome to the broadcast, sir.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me, Brad.
0: So this, I got to say, it's all very confusing. And thank you in advance for helping us make sense of it. No pressure. Both here and at Quartz, Uh, you report that there are more than 450,000 new commercial driver's licenses issued every year. But year after year, the ATA, the American Trucking Associations, are complaining that they are short 40, 50, 60, this year 80,000 drivers this math does not seem to add up to me you report that the problem is not a shortage of drivers but a shortage of retention of those drivers
3: yeah so you have to put a little bit of an asterisk on that 450,000 figure in the sense that states are, are doling out 450,000 of these licenses
1: mm-hmm.
3: and you should note look it's it's everything from truckers but also people who are driving stretched limousines tractors Mm-hmm. All sorts of things need these licenses, right? But, and there's some renewals in there because you've got to get your, your license renewed every five years. So you can, you can count maybe a fifth of those as renewals. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, right? One way or the other, you have hundreds of thousands of new workers entering the market who are licensed if they wanted to, if they chose to, to operate a truck. The thing is that they are not choosing to. That's mm-hmm. so a recruitment problem. Mm-hmm. And then those truckers who then enter the industry Turn out at a tremendous rate. I mean, between 1995 and 2017, uh, the turnover rate at big trucking companies averaged 94, uh, percent <laughs> and that's according to the American Trucking Association uh-huh. own data. Which means so every year they're refilling the equivalent of virtually every driving position because people are are quitting and yeah.
0: leaving, going to other companies. Yeah, that that was an amazing number, 94 percent turnover, meaning that. 94% of drivers leave their jobs at those companies each year. It does seem like there is something else going on here other than a shortage of, uh, of drivers themselves. You report the real shortage is of good trucking jobs that can attract and retain workers in a tight labor market. What does that mean exactly?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, you, you can't underrate the fact that trucking is, is a tough, job, and especially long-haul trucking, which mm-hmm. is where you have uh, the most serious trouble recruiting and retaining workers. It's jobs where you're working 70-hour weeks. You're away from home and your mm-hmm. family days or weeks on end. Um, there's all kinds of hardships involved in it. I mean, it's a job where you're sitting in a chair all day and working at a rest stop. It's the only food available to use, fast food. There's all mm-hmm. kinds of health uh, mm-hmm. kind of considerations that come with it. Mm-hmm. If you want to take a shower, it costs 15 bucks to take a shower at a truck stop. Mm-hmm you know, it's, it's not an easy job. And then on top of that, pay is basically flat against other kind of comparable blue-collar jobs. And so a lot of workers who are licensed, have these commercial driver's licenses, could be working these long-haul routes are deciding either I, I want to choose instead to work a short-haul trucking route or I want to drive a city bus or I want to leave this whole driving thing behind entirely. I want to go work in an Amazon warehouse or work in construction or work in manufacturing. Some other job is going to get me home to my family at the end of the day, every single day.
0: It sounds like if this is a problem that has gone on year over year, uh, you say for you know the last 16 years, they've been putting out these press releases, how they are short on drivers. But in fact, there's been various shortages going all the way back to the 1980s. Kind of sounds like the market itself is broken somehow. Trucking wages, you report, have in fact risen 6.7% since April of this year uh, when the American COVID-19 epidemic began in uh, in earnest, uh, according to BLS figures. Has, has, has that helped as far as retention, keeping these people in place in their jobs?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, you, you mentioned in the intro this this kind of strange thing in a market economy where you have a shortage that can persist for decades on end. I mean, Mm -hmm. it kind of breaks basic economic theory. Yeah, But the the whole way a market's supposed to work is if there's a shortage, then the price for something goes up. So if you can't find drivers, then the price, their wages is supposed to rise. And then eventually people will be motivated to come along and supply that thing, and boom, your shortage goes away.
1: Mm -hmm. And
3: in fact, in, in 2019, so right before the pandemic, a couple of economists looked into this for the labor department and they published a paper asking exactly that question is the is the market for trucking labor broken and they concluded basically no uh changes in in pay can entice workers to enter the market or leave the market if you raise wages more truck drivers actually do show up and yet like you said a lot of trucking companies around this time are raising wages. They tend to kind of seasonally do these things uh, ahead of the holiday uh-huh. shipping craze. so They're trying to attract workers. But even now, you know, supply chains are more uh, chaotic than ever, and so there's all these stories coming out about big splashy pay raises, bonuses, guaranteed pays, uh, guaranteed pay for drivers who mm-hmm. wind up sitting stuck in a port waiting to load or unload a container all day. So companies are raising wages and making conditions more tolerable for workers. And as a result, employment in trucking has gone up about 7% since the pandemic began, which maps pretty nicely onto the fact that, uh, Wages have risen also,
1: I think, 6.7 percent since the pandemic
0: began. Yeah, well, it's actually interesting. I mean, in, in fact, I think uh, it, it sounds like in, in one sense, obviously, there is a shortage of drivers for what needs to be done. But it seems like it's only because the trucking industry itself has sort of tried to get by on the cheap for years. Uh, is, that a right, is that the right way to look at this?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that's exactly right. Like, two things are simultaneously. There are unfilled trucking roles out there, no doubt about that. But to say that it's the, the problem is that there simply aren't enough workers in the United States who are capable of driving a truck. It's just not true, right? There, there are a lot of people, millions of workers out there with these commercial driver's licenses mm-hmm. who could be enticed to enter the industry for the right price,
0: basically. Yeah, well, even even at the price that they're offering, you you note that uh, trucker wages are, in fact, rising, but they're rising at about the same rate as wages overall in the U.S. Now, you would think that that would be enough to keep the drivers in the jobs, but, in fact, I guess wages have been kept so low for so long, and the difficulty of doing these jobs is uh, such that if someone can make comparable money... Uh, you know, working at a at a factory at home without having to be on the road for for days at a time, they would rather take the same job for the same wages that at least allows them the creature comforts of living at home.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's exactly right. I, I think this is a kind of clear market signal that wages in trucking need to rise more if the industry wants to have a full employment, mm-hmm. and then B wants to improve its retention figures. Which is, I think, you know, the only way that you get to more close to, to full employment. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there are some, actually, some interesting structural reasons why they haven't done that. And uh, you know, you alluded to this a moment ago. they basically, big trucking companies have basically made the decision that they're going to tolerate these insanely high uh, turnover rates among their workers that they're going to just hire new people for nearly hundred percent of their roles every <laughs> single year and you know these, these labor department economists who wrote this paper when they're talking about the long-haul trucking industry one of the things they they pointed out is that long-haul trucking especially when you're dealing with the customer base of, of big box retailers or people like walmart and amazon uh-huh. it's a really low margin business your customers have a tremendous amount of market and pricing power And so the the trucking firms are in this race to the bottom to just lash Mm. rates as much as they possibly can. And basically, they've decided, this is our business model. We're going to keep rates really low. It's going to prevent us from raising wages all that much and holding on to a stable workforce. But you know what? We're just going to find ways to recruit new people every single year and replace the people who leave and kind of keep the ship moving that way.
0: Uh, now we're told that the uh you know the Teamsters Union the union for uh, for truck drivers is is one of the most powerful na- uh, unions in the nation what what do they have to say about all of this and why haven't they been able to demand more money and frankly better working conditions from the industry bosses you know at for example the the ATA who who are always complaining about the lack of drivers where are wh- where's the union in all of this
3: <laughs> you know i, I mean Look, I think one thing you could say is the reason why wages aren't lower and conditions aren't worse is because you have unions in the first place.
0: That they would be yeah. lower even still without the unions. But I mean, it, it, I I don't understand. You know, again, just going back to you know simple market fundamentals. We need drivers. They're not paying them enough. Pay them more. We'll get more drivers.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, and look, um, there's. A lot of different areas of, of trucking that don't operate exactly the same way, right? So, like if, if you're uh, doing short haul routes between ports and warehouses in in one city, mm-hmm. uh, that's a different thing than if you're a long haul trucker just driving coast to coast over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's relevant because you know those jobs at the at the ports they are more fully staffed. Those workers are better off, they're able to go home to their families every day, Mm -hmm. the the conditions are better than they are for the long-haul truckers. If you think about long-haul trucking, it's a very atomized industry. The workers are all working in basically total solitude. It's just them in the cab with the truck day Mm -hmm. after day after day. There's not a whole lot of convening that you can do of workers in that situation. It makes it harder to organize. And I think it does make it harder for unions to sort of convene that group of workers and, and stage walkouts mm. or demand better wages or better conditions
0: and stuff like that. You also note that it's uh, it's not only pay and benefits. It's a, a longtime failure to invest in U.S. infrastructure that has uh, made these jobs unattractive to many. How does uh, U.S. infrastructure play a part here? And should we expect that the recent uh, $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package that was signed recently by President Biden, that that might uh, make a difference on, on some of these points?
3: Yeah, so there's there's one crucial kind of fact to keep in mind, which is that the way pay works in trucking, most truckers today are being paid by the mile, Mm -hmm. not by the hour. So any time that they waste, essentially, for example, waiting at an overcrowded port to get a container on the back of their truck, Mm -hmm. they're not moving and they're not getting paid for that time, Mm -hmm. right? So the insufficient port infrastructure is leading them to have to... Spend all this time sitting there working, right, on the job, but not being paid because they're not moving. Similarly, there's not enough uh, truck parking. There's insufficient truck parking along U.S. highways, which creates hardships for truckers in the sense that uh, they have to stop and waste time and look around for parking. Mm. Or if they see a spot that's open, they'll stop driving, you know, maybe an hour or two than they would otherwise have to. And so they don't get paid for those kind of more miles Mm they can be adding on to their their day. So with the infrastructure bill, uh, it does contain some funding for updating ports. There's no money in there, despite some industry lobbying for any kind of truck parking. Mm. Really, the, the biggest swing that the infrastructure bill takes at, at addressing these issues uh, has nothing to do with infrastructure. Um, it creates an apprenticeship program that lowers the minimum driving age uh, down to 18. Mm -hmm. So it just allows the industry to start recruiting kids out of high school to work in trucking.
0: Yeah, and you know what I, I I read your reporting on that, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. Actually, um, a uh, younger kids running trucks at this point, um, but you know, apprenticeship programs for teenagers in the long haul trucking industry. Does this mean that is this a way to get more drivers without having to pay them more money?
3: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think that's certainly one way to to read this is to say, well, if your business model is kind of turn-and-burn thing, low-retention model, you want to just get more entry-level workers in the door, I and mean, it doesn't really matter how long they stick around, then, yeah, widening the pool of people you can recruit from certainly helps with that kind of thing. Um, I think the trucking industry makes a legitimate argument, which is, especially for, for long-haul trucking, you cannot, by law, up until this infrastructure bill passed, you could not cross state lines driving a truck until you turn 21. But what that means is, by the time trucking was trying to recruit people to be long-haul drivers, you know, it's not like they had spent the three years between 18 and 21 sitting on the couch. They, they had gone to work in some other field, right? right. They are three years deep into some other career by the time trucking companies could try to recruit them. Right. And, you know, I think that's a legitimate kind of complaint. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there was a reason why there was an age limit on this whole thing, which is that I mean, they've done studies, they've looked at the Uh, the statistics on driver safety, and younger drivers tend to crash more often than Mm -hmm. older drivers. Uh, 21-year-olds crash more often than 25-year-olds, and 18-year-olds crash more often than 21-year-olds.
0: You know, it, it it seems unsurprising, frankly, that the corporate media is sort of uh, leading with blaming the drivers. It's a lack of drivers in their coverage rather than blaming the industry itself for, frankly, a lack of good pay and benefits for the drivers for a very difficult job. Does your reporting, uh, Nico Rivera, suggest that if drivers were actually offered more for this really difficult and really inconvenient job that they would actually be able to end this seemingly perpetual shortfall of drivers that there is a solution here it's just one that the industry does not wish to take
3: yeah i mean brad it's a market right in theory <laughs> in theory it is if, Yeah. if the wages you're offering aren't, aren't attracting the the labor that you want you know the econ 101 raise the wages and you might get somewhere. And, and, you know, it's kind of a glib way of putting it, but, I mean, I I charted, right, the rate of change of trucker wages against people being attracted to then enter the industry. Mm -hmm. And when wages go up, trucking employment goes up. When they cut wages, trucking employment goes down.
0: What? That's insane. Who could have predicted it? Well, I'll tell you what, if if Americans cannot get their Chinese-made crap for Christmas, someone is going to pay a price for that, I have some feeling the corporate media, as they do, will helpfully blame the Democrats, they'll blame Joe Biden for it, rather than years of ignoring infrastructure concerns and the fact that, you know, they have been reducing the power of unions and workers for years. And you can just, you know, I just get that sense from so much of this reporting on this that sort of seems to to blame drivers. And, you know, similarly in, in uh, other industries here, oh, it's a lack of workers. It doesn't seem like it's a lack of workers. Seems like we got a lot of workers. It seems like a lack of pay and workers saying, you know what, I don't have to take these crap jobs anymore.
3: Right. And, you know, I think the other thing to consider in all this is is during all this pandemic induced chaos in, in supply chains, freight rates for everything uh the shipping getting stuff across the ocean air cargo and trucking all those freight rates have gone up uh these companies are making more money and significantly more profits than they're used to it's usually a very low margin business so at least in the short run you know during this very acute crisis that we're all feeling the effects of the money is there to raise wages it's just a matter of do you uh-huh. choose to do you choose to do that? Do you choose to make that your business strategy that open. you're going to, in the long run, pay high wages?
0: Yeah, open the wallet instead of collecting the profits. Uh, Nicolás Rivero, you can find his uh, excellent work on this at qz.com. That's quartz qz.com, and you can find him on the twitters at Nicolas Fu Rivero. Should we take a message <laughs> from that Fu in your Twitter <laughs> handle, uh, Nico?
3: My- my middle name is Funcia and
0: it didn't all fit. Sure. No one believes you. Uh, Nico Rivera, really, <laughs> really appreciate you joining us today. We will uh, link over to your work over at Quartz, including your article, There Is No Shortage of U.S. Truck Drivers. Really appreciate you joining us today, Nico. Thanks for having me, Brad. You bet. Okay, I got, I think, one more story that I've, I have time for here before okay. we uh, roll out of here on our own truck, Desi Doyen. Almost uh, three weeks ago now, at the beginning of November, when Republican Glenn Youngkin was declared the winner of the gubernatorial contest in Virginia during the off-year election, along with Republicans sweeping the other statewide posts for lieutenant governor and attorney general, uh, well, it took a day or two, it had been declared that Republicans had also regained majority control of Virginia's 100-seat House of Delegates, 52 to 48. Do you remember that? Yes. Well, not so fast, apparently, At least not yet. David Near brought this to my attention at Daily Coast last night. He he writes, amazingly enough, control of Virginia's House of Delegates is still up in the air as a pair of extremely tight races are now headed for recounts. Oh, which we will be watching over the holiday Uh, as near neatly summarized. He says there's 100 seats in the House, Republicans, 150 of them. In the November 2nd elections, Democrats are now known to have won 48 of them, but two races now still remain uncalled. Those uncalled races are for seats currently held by two Democratic delegates and uh, uh, Alex Askew in the 85th District and Martha Mugler in the 91st District. Now, in both cases, Republicans currently lead. But just barely in both cases, their margins are razor thin, 127 votes in the 85th District, 94 votes in the 91st District. And in both cases, Democrats have requested recounts. Of course, the hand marked paper ballots that are now thankfully used across the entire Commonwealth of Virginia, that will help. That, after they ditched their 100% unverifiable touchscreen systems just a few years ago.
2: Wow, that's that's good.
0: Yeah, not a moment too soon. You'll remember it was discovered after years of folks like us warning them that those touchscreens were exceedingly vulnerable to manipulation. They, finally, state officials noticed... Things like a hard-coded password 1234 for the machines and wireless modems that made the voting machines accessible to anybody just sitting in the parking lot outside of a precinct. So, yeah... They got rid of them, replaced them with hand-marked paper ballots that we can now count in close races. David Neer notes that these last two races will determine whether Republicans win an outright majority or whether the chamber will be split 50-50, forcing Republicans into a power-sharing arrangement of some sort with Democrats. Neer notes there is no sugarcoating it. The odds that Democrats can overcome the GOP marg- margins— Uh, In both of these races are long, but he says when there's any chance at all of stopping Republicans from seizing power, uh, we need to take it. He said we need we need to fight to make sure every vote is correctly and fairly counted. In fact, one error in the initial vote tally. And this is why everyone thought that it went to the Republicans. Uh, There was an error that was discovered that led um, Muggler, Martha Muggler, to withdraw her initial concession the margin between uh, her and her republican opponents which is now 0.3 tenths of a percentage point had narrowed to 91 votes after an election official noticed that some numbers had been transposed in uh, one of the uh, in one of the districts one of the numbers for the republicans that total was initially reported as 767 votes for him it was later corrected to 676 votes for him.
2: Yeah, that's kind of a problem. I'm yeah, glad they so found that.
0: They found that. They corrected it. And, and now they're going to recount it all to make sure it's right. So you never know until, you know, actual human beings hand count actually. Handmarked paper ballots near argues that the traditional media has been eagerly writing the democrats obituaries ever since the elections earlier this month but a turnaround here would undercut that narrative and snatch a victory from the jaws of defeat well we will see and we will yes be keeping our eyes on that over the holiday is that it that's it we got to get out of here start up the truck des my thanks to our guest nicholas nico rivera of quartz my thanks to, of course, Desi Doyan, and to all of you for uh, spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it for free anytime at Bradblog.com. Of course, our thanks not just over Thanksgiving, but every day of the year to those of you who stop by Bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me maybe at The Brad Blog. I will see you there until we see you here after the holidays. I hope you have a happy, safe, and healthy Thanksgiving. We'll see you afterwards. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. He's down, loaded up
1: and Are We gonna do what they say can't be done. We've got a lot Short time.